G'day mate, 40 here. Just got off the plane here in Sydney. And uh, it's kind of interesting going through customs and not being treated like a suspect, not being treated like the enemy. That's the wonderful thing about returning to a coherent, cohesive country like Australia, that uh, as a citizen, you're not automatically treated with suspicion like you're the enemy by your government. Australians by and large think that the, the government's on their side. It's kind of a nice thing. So we're here at Coogee Beach. So plane arrived about 7.30 this morning. Made my way through customs in about half an hour. Perfectly pleasant experience. Then rode public transport, rode the bus here to Coogee. And uh, did you know that even white people are able to drive buses? And from my experience in America, I thought only black, brown, and Asian people were able to drive buses. But uh, apparently even white people are capable of driving a bus here in Australia. And they're capable of working for the government and working in customs. Ah, welcome to Coogee, mate. What a beautiful suburb here on Sydney's east, eastern shores. So after I got settled, put my stuff away, had two protein bars, got down to the beach, just needed to unwind and uh, read the New York Times. Just makes me feel relaxed. What am I doing back in Australia? Mate, I like to spend my winters back in, in uh, Sydney with all the posh people, right? Some, some posh people like to spend their, their winters in Palm Springs, but... I just like to spend my winters in in Sydney. So I'd like to get over here for two or three months every year. Share the gospel of ethical monotheism. Do some outreach. Be an emissary for the Rebbe. It's a tough life, but someone's got to live it. Ah. <sighs> Stochastic terrorism. Have you heard about stochastic terrorism before? Like, I just think I just heard about it in the past week. I mean, Tucker was making fun of it. Tucker Carlson was making fun of it. And then on the front page of the New York Times had a columnist, the big article on stochastic terrorism. So did you know that the attack on Paul Pelosi is reviving a conversation? You can't work remotely? Yes, I can work remotely. I have internet access Right? I can teach Alexander Technique remotely. I can write, I can edit, I can research for people. Perfectly capable of working remotely down under. And if the worst comes to the worst, I'll end up in my brother's nursery. Logging bags of concrete around. Nothing like moving a couple of, couple of tons of uh, concrete to uh, get the blood flowing. So stochastic terrorism, that is terrorism by you know, random disturbed individuals but who are being activated or set off or stimulated by, by demonic language. All right. So apparently, even though both sides can demonize the other, it's overwhelmingly overwhelmingly something that Republicans do to Democrats. Can I express my vulnerabilities as adroitly over there? No, it's uh, much more repression here in Australia. 
right? It's much less of a me first, let me be open with my emotions, much more repression. So yeah, Australia is being changed by its immigrant population, but Australia is simultaneously changing its immigrant population, making them more waspy, or white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, a little more reserved. So as I, as I get off the bus, I'll get off the plane, go through the airport, get on the bus, ride public transport, looking at, look at people walking down the street, I don't see you know, the, the vivid emotional display that I see more often in America. So Australians tend to be a little more muted in their emotions. So still kind of a less enthusiastic society than America. Less about being open with your emotions, but very into physical fitness. So it is it's about 11 a.m. here on a Friday. So stochastic terrorism. The New York Times says that this is primarily primarily a result of Republican rhetoric demonizing their opponents. The Republicans are much more likely to demonize their opponents than Democrats. Well, as Republicans are much more likely to believe in demons, as Republicans are much more likely to believe in the supernatural, as Republicans are much more likely to believe in the transcendent, to believe in God, to believe in religion, then, yeah, I think they're more likely to use demonic language, right? A, a Republican is more likely to be medieval or pre-modern. So liberals are very modern. They believe in the strategic, autonomous, rational, buffered self. And people who are not liberal are much more likely to hold traditional views where ourselves are porous, where we're affected by what's going on around us, where what you're doing is going to affect me, where we're much more skeptical of human nature. We don't believe that people are just inherently oriented towards uh, the good and the right. right. So people on the left think that uh, human nature tends towards the good. People on the right tend to have much more skeptical views of human nature. And we're much more skeptical of the power of human reason on the right. We think that people are going to misuse their reason to do the things that they want to do, and then they're simply going to justify it using you know, fancy rhetoric and fancy you know, rational arguments, right? We often uh, use rational arguments to make the case for doing what we just emotionally feel driven to do. So, yeah, I bet Republicans are more likely to demonize their opponents, just as you know, people who believe that you can choose your sex Right? They're more likely to believe in uh, transgender language and that orientation. So, yeah, your worldview is going to affect the language that you use. In the final analysis, people don't get murdered because of rhetoric, because of language. People get murdered because of conflicts of interest. Right, Group conflicts of interest are what, uh, are what drive group conflicts that turn deadly so great news guys checking out the New York Times today says that Republicans are trying to stoke fear over crime while the data is mixed so according to the New York Times people have this vastly exaggerated fear of increases in crime and uh, the data just don't support it so all these people think that crime's getting worse and worse but come on guys you gotta listen to the data alright
Gotta listen to the data. And the New York Times will give you the data. It's like, yeah, that murder rates are up 40% since May of 2020. But heck, that's just because of COVID. Right? It's not because of the anti-police reaction driven by our elites in the media and academia and politics, mainly on the left side of the political spectrum, which discouraged police from doing their job. Right? That's not the reason why we have this massive upsurge in homicide and grievous bodily harm, assaults, and other crimes. Also, many police departments are becoming much less rigorous about tracking crime. People have less incentive to make crime reports because the police are now experiencing less incentives to track down crime. So when the police have less incentives to report crime, and the police have less incentives to do their job, and when people have less fewer incentives to report a crime, yeah, you're going to have a decrease in many reports of crime. So who are you going to believe, the data or your lying eyes? Now, there are areas where the data tends to be very accurate, and that's when it comes to dead bodies. Because industrialized nations, first world nations, they tend to take, uh, take death pretty seriously. Right, so when it comes to murder, that's where you get the most most accurate crime statistics. Pretty much every other crime, aside from murder, is much less accurate. But uh, it's kind of amusing to see all these stories in the New York Times, other elite media, about how people are overreacting to the crime problem. The Republicans are just seizing on it to try to win elections, but it's not, it's not rooted in data, guys. Right? Your growing concern about crime is not rooted in data. I see crimes every day. I'm a white man. I'm not getting involved in that kind of thing. I don't want to even give the appearance of impropriety. Okay, so I was hanging out at the airport. I just made this trip on the spare of a moment. So uh, Wednesday morning, I said, ah, I want to go to Australia for a few months. So I booked a flight, took off Wednesday night at 10.30. When I was sitting in the airport at LAX, I started talking to this Australian couple here from Sydney, and they were visiting a child in Los Angeles. And when they were fueling up their car, one of the more diverse, beautiful parts of South Central, East LA, uh, they saw a man just assaulting a woman, like just punching, 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 punching her. And they froze because they'd been told, don't interfere. See, if that took place in Australia, people would step up. They would interfere. So you may think, oh, Australia's got these low crime rates. That's wonderful. But it comes with tremendous amounts of repression. Right? It comes with people getting much more involved. It comes with you know higher social trust, higher social cohesion. But then people make more demands on each other. So you start building a woman here in Australia, and people will talk to you about it. Right? People will say, no, you can't do that. People would be much more likely to call the police. But uh, this couple said they, they went inside the gas station and said, hey, there's this man assaulting a woman. And uh, the Latino gas station attendant just didn't want to do anything. He says it's, it's best not to get involved. So all these people were watching a man repeatedly punch a woman very hard, and they just didn't want to do anything about it. They just didn't want to get involved, right? They'd, they'd been educated, you don't get involved. So in Australia, people are much more likely to get involved. They'll call the police. 
and they'll make demands on each other, say, hey, mate, that's not right. You can't, can't attack a woman like that. So the high-trust, high-cohesion country right, comes with a price. In China, they don't get involved either. They just stand by and watch, because if you get involved, you have a risk of liability. Same in the U.S. Blaming the uninvolved would surprise me is the next step of the clown world. But why do people stop getting involved? Because it's too dangerous, right? You change the incentives, you change the level of social trust and social cohesion, how much people get, get involved. So we can, we can decide our crime rates, we can decide our wage rates by limiting immigration and by how much we lock up people who do horrible things. Right? We lock up super predators, the 1% of the population that uh, does much of the crime, then you have much lower crime rates. Right? If you limit immigration so that uh, you can still form a socially cohesive society, you can have higher wage rates and have more social trust, lower rates of crime. But then that comes with a price. People will make more ask you for more. They'll ask you to report crime. They'll ask you to step up. They might even want to drink from your garden hose when they're thirsty. You can drink from someone's garden hose when you're thirsty in Australia without being afraid of getting shot. So yeah, Sydney, one of the safest cities in the world, low crime rates, high social trust, high social cohesion. But think about the tremendous price to be paid in terms of repression, right? So, there's virtually no public masturbation here in Australia. You don't see human feces smeared all over the sidewalks. Right? You just don't see the graffiti. You don't see the mariachi bands. So, think about what you give up. Yeah, you have lower rates of crime, but you have much higher rates of repression. Think about all the great graffiti artistry and feces artistry that we're losing here in Australia because of you know high rates of Anglo-Saxon repression. And also people are a little more restrained here in Australia. Right? They're not as uh, me first, they're not as self-expressive. And not, oh, I just got to follow my bliss. I just got to do my own thing. Like, people are much more concerned about their mates, much more concerned about their relationships with other people, much more concerned about their connections, much more concerned about their standing in society, kind of less of a me-first society. Not nearly as many fair jumpers. Like, got on the bus, and uh, quite different from riding the bus in L.A., New York City, Washington DC, Chicago, where apparently there, there are privileged groups of people who don't have to pay the fare. But uh, there, aren't, there aren't apparently whole groups of people marked out by the will of heaven here in Australia who don't feel obliged to pay the fare. Every, almost everybody seems to pay the fare. And they can even leave baggies out for people to pick up after their dogs because the, the baggies don't get stolen. You can have nice things. Like look out at this park. There's no trash. There's no graffiti. There are these beautiful public spaces. Clean public restrooms. 
clean beaches. It's safe. You can go anywhere in Sydney anytime. You don't have to fear for your life. But it comes with a price of repression. Also, the kids here wear public uniforms, school uniforms. So I think, I think that discipline also creates social cohesion. Like if you just march with people, then uh, that feels a bond. You create a bond if you just simply march with people. The people in Australia comment on my accent. Yeah, they say it doesn't, doesn't sound American, but it doesn't sound Australian either. It's kind of in between. And being back in Aussie gets my Aussie accent starting to rev up again. So there aren't uh, bad parts of town in Sydney. Right, so in Los Angeles there are bad parts of town, but there aren't there are burned out parts of town like the Bronx or how the Bronx used to be. So in every part of Los Angeles you have nice cities. But you still have some very dangerous areas. Still, comparatively, Los Angeles has low rates of murder compared to Chicago, New York City, Washington, D.C., and some other cities. So the New York Times article on uh, crime said uh, it's related to poverty. But there's another variable. There seems to be like one group where the higher the percentage of the population is this one group, then the more likely you are to have violent crime. Far more accurate predictor than poverty. But for some reason, the New York Times doesn't want to name the group. But I, I'm missing LA diversity. I gotta be honest, we don't, we don't have the talented 10th here, disrupting the public square, making us rethink our white privilege. Where's the blaring mariachi music? creative acts of graffiti and masturbation and feces smearing. Get on public transport and it smells nice. It smells just fine. Infrastructure smells fine. Parks are clean. Kind of miss the, the edge of the, the big city. Graffitis, yeah. That's what you give up when you have low crime, high repression. You give up all that free smearing. Missing the adrenaline rush from almost getting robbed or killed in a, by a diverse cultured youth. Yeah, it's so much more exciting, bro. But uh, Australia still, still sends many of its most ambitious young people to America. So if you want to be a great architect, great movie director, great actor, great musician, people still come to America to make it yeah just so calm here in Australia so I still see people with masks particularly in the airport and on public transport mainly Asians but uh, it seemed like about a third of the people on public transport and in the airport wearing masks on the flight yeah about a third third to a half of the flight were still wearing masks so it seems like uh, Asians more likely to wear masks than whites, and whites more likely to wear masks than some other peoples. It seems to correlate with uh, driving and crime rates generally. 
So Asians, East Asians, tend to have about the lowest crime rates. They tend to conduct themselves more carefully with academics, with career, with earning, with family formation, with uh, sexual choices. And uh, part of their being careful is uh, much more likely to wear a mask. I would move to Sydney if I could afford to live in a nice white area and force to live in small town North South Wales, but it's almost 100% white. Yeah, Australia is still about 85% white and about 15% Asian and about 0.5% uh, Aborigine. So I'm going to be cancelling a lot of my subscriptions, like to YouTube TV, to uh, get NFL Red Zone, uh, Paramount Plus, because they're, they're no good over here. So for KO Sports, I think, last time I was here for like $27 a month, I could get all the sports I want. And the World Cup is starting up in two weeks. So... We get KO Sports, $27 a month, all the live streaming sports that I want or need. And also many of the, the best ESPN Plus documentaries are on there as well. Some of their own original docos. So just to the left of me is the beautiful Kuji to Bondi walk. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Just gorgeous walk along the coast. About uh, five miles or so. Bye-bye. G'day, mate. 40 here. Just did 15 hard hours to Sydney. That is a flight. Direct flight. 15 hours and uh, 15 minutes is what it was predicted to take. I think we got in 20 minutes early. So the flight back takes only 12 hours because you're going with the wind. But flying from California to Sydney, you're going against the wind. So I paid $184 extra for a direct flight. So it's just 15 hours, man. Are those airline seats getting smaller or what? Now, I flew Delta. Good experience. Uh, the stewards are very nice. Stewardesses were very nice. Like They handed out food three different times. I only, only had... Uh, had some yogurt and fruit for brekkie, so I skipped out on the, the other two meals. But I didn't want to drink much, right? Because I was in the I was in the window seat, and a very nice married couple next to me from Colorado, out visiting a child here in Sydney. But I didn't want to have to ask them to get up and move. Like I couldn't scoot by. Right? It was so cramped that they had to get up and move if I wanted to go to the loo. And so for a 15-hour flight, I limited myself to two glasses of water. All right? so I just, just felt bad like m making them move. 15, that's, that's not an easy flight. Man, like the first two, three hours, I was going kind of stir-crazy. Like you got a cramped seat. Like the flight took off at like 10:40 p.m. Our plane is absolutely full. So the last time 
I, I flew to Australia, like you could just stretch out, right? The, the plane, Fiji Airlines, it was only about 20% full just uh, when Australia first started relaxing its COVID restrictions so that Australian citizens could fly back to the country. So that was sweet. Flying on a plane about 20% full so you can just have a whole row to yourself, stretch out. That was idyllic. But this flight, pretty much every seat was taken. And I ended up spending just over $2,000 because I was willing to spend $184 to fly direct. So would you spend $184 to save 10 hours of layover time? So like a six hour layover and then you have to fly a bit out of your way. So it adds about eight, 10, 20 hours to your flight. So the, the cheapest flight, uh, there was a 19 and a half hour layover in Indonesia. So the flight would have ended up being about 42 hours. Like, no thank you. I'm willing to spend $184 to save 10 hours on a flight, certainly 20 hours on a flight. I've just turned into a reckless big spender. Last time I flew to Australia, return, it was like $1,200. But uh, this time around, I think the, the flight from LAX to Sydney was about $1,300. And then the flight from Sydney to LAX back was about $700. But uh, not easy when every seat is taken. You don't like interrupting people to get up to use the loo. So I just let, let an audio book run all night. Just kind of laid my head on a pillow against the window. And uh, the seat in front of me was leaning back. I was like at the bulkhead or something. My seat would not lean back. So the seat in front of me was like leaning right, right back onto me. And I just closed my eyes, tried to tune into this audiobook on, on the English experience of World War II. A terrific book. I'll link it in the, in the description. It's like the fourth time I, I've listened to it. So there are certain books, audiobooks, that I like to listen to that are moderately interesting, but they're not so exciting that they'll keep me up at night. So I think I was able to drift in and out of sleep then next morning had some coffee so this is my first coffee in about six months so that's how I'm able to still function but I'm so sleep deprived and jangly from the coffee that I can't be bothered figuring out how to use my gimbal right now so I should be giving you a nice smooth gimbal tilt and zoom but uh, I, I can't be bothered right now I just don't have enough brain cells and 15 hours so first few hours was tough and then I I became conscious around around 6 a.m. California time my YouTube feed sometimes puts up a vid by 40 about getting cheap airline tickets 10-15 years ago so yeah back in 2007 I'd stopped writing on the porn industry and so I was trying to figure out a new way to make money so I tried a bunch of topics just to like talk to the camera about all sorts of different topics kind of based on this software program I'd built which predicted how much you could make from AdSense on different topics. So I did a whole bunch of topics and how to get cheap airline tickets. I think that was the highest rating of my experimental you know, YouTube videos. And, and I think I ended up making 
I don't know, three or four hundred dollars on that video, which probably took about an hour's work. Then I made a bunch of videos on how to refinance your mortgage. They did not pay off, surprisingly. So, yeah, I tried a bunch of things to make money online. I spent $10,000 on how to make money online in 2007 and 2008. And the, the direct payoff for that investment was probably about $2,500. So I spent $10,000 to directly make about $2,500. But then I was able to make a deal from it that uh, paid off about $80,000. So it was indirect, but as a result of the things I learned from you know, buying $10,000 worth of programs on how to make money online, I was able to keep my head above water from February 2010 until April of 2012 when I started earning decent money again. But uh, I remember had a girlfriend in February of 2010 and she went off for a weekend and I went off to Limud LA that weekend and I love Limud LA a bunch of Jews like 400 Jews gather at uh, Orange County Hilton and we all you know stay inside for four days long weekend just listening to Torah talks and having meals no adventures into the great outdoors very Jewish event and uh when she, when she calls me after the event, I wasn't able to hear her end of the phone call. There was something off with her phone. And then the next morning she says, you know, I, I don't want to date you anymore. So I was pretty sad about that. But that same weekend, I got an email about this great offer to make some substantial coin that, that kept me afloat from 2010 to 2012. And I wouldn't have gotten that offer if it wasn't from the things I learned in those $10,000 worth of how to make money online programs. But uh, anyway, 15-hour flight to Sydney. Once I'd hit the halfway point, like once I realized I'm more than halfway through this, much easier to get through it. Uh, got through the last two hours by watching the latest Downton Abbey movie. It's just a very pleasant movie to watch. Uh, not too taxing. Now, the lovely couple next to me, they were watching the latest Top Gun movie, which is not really a movie built for enjoying on an airplane. It's really something you want to see on a big screen. You also watch the Elvis movie. And again, not really something built for the small screen, built for a bigger screen. But uh, Downton Abbey movie was just amusing and pleasant and uh, just perfect for getting me through the last two hours of this hellacious flight. And it really helped having very pleasant, you know, erudite, you know, friendly, nice couple. It was his first time out, out of the United States. Kind of incredible. What, what 60% of the United States population does not have a passport? There's something like two-thirds two of Americans have not traveled outside of North America. So this was his first time. Just very pleasant listening to the lady with her somewhat watered-down uh, South African accent. And charming accent to listen to and just lovely couple just really made the journey much smoother so can you imagine what it'd be like to be stuck on a plane with with people that you don't really care for but uh of course i was going to be on a plane filled with aussies because we were going to sydney mate so audio box that's how i got through the flight 
mainly I listened to about 14 hours of an audiobook on England's experience of World War II and uh, have about I have the decline and fall of the Roman Empire under my audiobooks so there are about 80 hours of high quality content there it was overnight so I get on the plane at get on the plane at 10 o'clock so normally I go to bed at 10 o'clock I usually listen to uh, watch like an episode or two of Cheers before I go to bed that like listening to that kind of comedy takes the edge off and uh, gets me ready to chill out if I if I don't listen to that comedy before I go to bed then I just get too way too easy to get hyperactive and my my mind starts going and I'm not able to you know calmly drift off into sleep so I brought my CPAP with me to Australia first time I've traveled with my CPAP I felt like my my backpack weighed about 50 60 pounds so I checked I didn't check any baggage I just lugged it onto the plane then uh, lugged it to the bus and lugged it from the bus to where I'm staying that's my workout now I'm just looking for some pull-up bars I haven't done any pull-ups need to do some pull-ups and push-ups today before Shabbos. wonder if I'll score a good Shabbos invite. So you're looking out towards Bondi. Duvid! Blessings to Duvid. So I've reached out to Jim Bowden, but I haven't heard back from Jim Bowden yet. It's my Aussie mate, regular in the chat, generous supporter of the show, based in Sydney. He took me all around Sydney last time I was here. So Bondi is just off in that direction, and that's that's the center of Jewish life. So Jews live on the eastern suburbs here by the ocean. Right? Most affluent areas of Sydney tend to be the Jewish areas. So Bondi is about uh, seven miles in that direction. So about uh, 15, 20,000 Jews live in, in and around Bondi. Probably got about uh, a dozen Orthodox synagogues. That's the burning center of Orthodox Jewish life. In Sydney. So Sydney much more secular Jewishly than Melbourne. So you want Judaism in Australia, you need to go to Melbourne. So much more traditional in Melbourne. So Sydney Jews tend to be much more secular. You, you can go to an Orthodox shul here and the only person who will be Shomer Shabbat will be the rabbi in the Chazan. And they're, they're paid to be Shomer Shabbat. So professional Jews often are Shomer Shabbat. Now, very they'd probably be, I'm sure they'd be Shomer Shabbat anyway, but certainly that adds a whole new layer of incentive. But you can go to many an Orthodox shul in and around Sydney and uh, pretty much nobody but the professional Jews are Shomer Shabbat, meaning fully observant of the Sabbath. But they retain a Jewish identity, there's a tremendous, tremendous you know, community sense. Like, not a lot of machlokas, controversy, schism, tearing people apart in Sydney. It's a pretty calm Jewish community. So Jews tend to be challenging people, sometimes difficult people, uh, often, you know, splitting off, forming their own synagogues. But uh, things are pretty calm in Sydney Jewish life. There, there aren't a lot of, you know, reckless schisms and needless hatred. Not a lot of sinat hanam, needless hatred here in, in Sydney. So we're looking out there, that's the Kuji Beach, where I made my earlier video. Going to write another book during my hiatus. I'm not sure. That's a lot of work. But I do plan to do some journaling, which may lead to blog posts. 
Now, those cliffs that you're seeing, the only time I heard police sirens when I was in Sydney a year ago, when a young man, I think, trying to take a selfie on those cliffs, like directly middle of the screen, right? He slipped over the edge and fell 30 feet to his death. And he did it right in front of his girlfriend. So it was a teenage boy, fell, Jim Bowden. No, mate, haven't checked my email. Oh, give me your number, mate. I, I'm not sure if I, I still have it, but definitely want to catch up with you. Great to, great to see you, mate. Thanks for being such a big supporter of the show and, and for your generous hospitality. And Maybe you can set me up with a mango or two, Mango Jim. I really need some mangoes. I came to Sydney, mate, to eat mangoes, to watch World Cup soccer, watch some cricket, right? watch the T20 World Series of cricket, eat more mangoes, maybe some tomato and cheese sandwiches with just a bit pinch of pepper and salt. Yeah, Koshin Vegan Chicken and Waffle Stream with Jim Bowden. Look, it's my favorite uh, dill citizen. Oh, mate, this is the life, right? I think this is the life for me. 40 needs three months a year in Beverly Hills and uh, three months a year in Bondi. Right? I think this is, this is the right ratio for me. Let me spend my winters in Bondi, Sydney, Coogee, and uh, let me spend nine months a year in Beverly Hills. Right? There's more concentrated, intense Yiddishkeit in Los Angeles. There's more Orthodox Judaism in Los Angeles. And uh, but just the, the quality of life. I mean, just feel the, the relaxation, the high trust, the high social cohesion, the, the absence of you know, anti-social groups. Everybody expected to obey the law, to be good citizens here in Australia. You get to have nice things here in Australia. Public spaces are clean. Oh, just like let go of all, all this unnecessary tension. I got a friend who used to write a blog about the hard time she has sleeping. But guess what? Once she left LA, she moved to Europe, started sleeping a lot better. So any needless tension that you carry around, right, can negatively affect your sleep. I don't know if you struggle with sleep, but uh, I certainly have. But the more at ease I can be with myself, the better I sleep, and the more at ease I am in my environment. Right? The more at ease I am with my community. Look at those beautiful butterflies. And the more at ease I'm likely to be in myself, the better I can sleep. Oh, mate, you offered to pick me up from the airport? You had not responded? No, mate, I didn't. I checked my email when I landed. There was nothing there from you. So I'll check it again, Jim Bowden. Well, we got to get together. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. This area is environmentally sensitive and contains some rare coastal plant species. Your assistance in preserving these plants by keeping to the defined access ways appreciated. I think that I'm an environmentally sensitive species, mate. I think I'm one of these rare coastal plant species. Right? So you're not going to be able to preserve these environmentally sensitive species unless 
people behave themselves, right? They can't go off the reservation. Like, how are you going to preserve environmentally sensitive species if people just start acting out? It requires a high trust, highly cohesive society if you're going to protect environmentally sensitive species. We've got rare species all around us. And the only way we're going to be able to protect them is if we have the privilege of living in a high trust, high cohesion society. Right? So there are all these instructions. Survival on the coast. What does it take, guys, to survive on the coast? Right? Plants growing along coastal cliffs endure extremely harsh conditions. We're only... Do we really want to create a world where only the hardiest survive? Or do we want to create a world where even the sensitive can survive? Right? And to do that, we'd have to band together. I mean, the alternative is just wind pruning. Right? We can have strong salt-laden winds from the sea bend trees and shrubs, just flattening everything in their path. Right? Do you really want to live in a society of extremely harsh conditions where only the hardiest survive? Where people perch on rock shelves and shallow, dry, sandy soils, waterlogged swamps, soils, baked by the sun, blasted by salt later onshore winds? Or do we want to create a world where even the environmentally sensitive can survive and share their live streams with us? Their beautiful, sensitive insights, right? I want to live in a world where the environmentally sensitive can survive. Right? Why should it just be the survival of the hardiest, the nastiest, the, the cruelest, the most selfish? Right? We can have a world where sensitive creatures, sensitive species survive. Right? We can choose that. We can choose to create a society where there aren't bad parts of town. We can choose to create a society where we lock up super predators, right? where we lock up people who try to devastate environmentally sensitive and rare species. So let's lock up the bad guys. Let's create a space for the environmentally sensitive like me, right? Where we can thrive. <laughs>